This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 146 as we chat with author and direct response copywriter Richard Armstrong about the persuasion techniques used by con artists that copywriters use as well, what he's learned from 40 years of writing junk mail and what he writes today, his new book, The Don Con, and a very useful free bonus he's sharing with copywriters. Richard, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to uh, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the emails you guys send every day. A lot of tremendous personality and and voice in those emails, and I I read them avidly. Well, that's, that's nice of Thank you to say. You. I think all of the personality is Kira. I'm I'm kind of the boring side, that so is, she deserves the credit. That's not for that. true, but thank you for saying that. That's very nice. And I was just saying before we started recording, Richard and I are officially neighbors because I just moved to Washington D.C. So we're going to hang out all the time, right, Richard? Absolutely. The only problem with being a uh, citizen of Washington is that the rest of the country hates you. So uh, <laughs> you go anywhere else on vacation, just don't tell them you're from Brooklyn. You'll get a much better response. Okay. These are things I need to know that you need to teach me. So we'll sit down and go through all the rules of what I need to know about living here. So let's kick this off, Richard, with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter? Well, it was totally by accident. I'm always uh, kind of amused uh, nowadays when I see these people, very young people, including one uh, successful copywriter that I know that actually got interested while she was still in college. Uh, that didn't happen in my day 45 years ago. I mean, I think just about all of us kind of fell into this business. And that was certainly my story. I got a job as a copy, um, not a copy boy, an office boy, an office boy with a direct mail agency. Now, what an office boy is, it's kind of like beneath a secretary. It's somebody who just hangs around the office. And if the important people need to have coffee or sandwiches sent in, you go get them and you lick envelopes and uh, you stand at the photocopier machine and, and make copies and things like that. And um, I was doing that for a while. And in, in our agency, which was a, a small direct mail fundraising agency, the structure that they had is that they did not have a creative department. All the account executives did their own copywriting, and none of them were very good at it. And uh, a few of them actually hated it. And uh, one day I was sitting with one of them, uh, and uh, he was just tearing his hair out about trying to write a fundraising letter. And I said, well, give me a whirl at it. Uh, I had always been told from high school and through college that I was a good writer, in fact, it, it kind of got me through college because I didn't really work very hard. But uh, And I had professors tell me this. They, they'd tell me this on Blue Books and things like that. They'd say, well, you obviously didn't uh, attend most of the classes and you didn't read most of the books, but you're a very good writer, so I'm going to have to give you a B plus. So <laughs> that's kind of how I got through college. So I thought, of my, I thought rather highly of my own writing ability, and I said, I'll take a shot at it. And I did. And uh, the account exec liked it, and he showed it to his boss, and his boss liked it. They decided to show it to the client. The client liked it. They mailed it, and it was a success. And the next thing you know, the boss came to me and said, you're the new creative director of this agency. <laughs> and I, I've got to tell you a funny story. Not long after that moment, when he told me I was the new creative director, um, we had this big meeting uh, of, of the entire staff in the conference room and the boss was up front with a blackboard and he was kind of planning out the next few months of what needed to be done in the agency. And he kept every few minutes, it seemed like he'd say, okay, Richard, we're going to need copy for this. And uh, we're going to need copy for that. And we're going to need copy for this over here. And when the meeting broke up, the, I, I turned to one of the guys in the room and I said, my God, I'm going to be standing at that photo photocopier machine for the rest of my life. <laughs> that many photocopies? And the guy said, 
No, you idiot. Copy is what we call fundraising letters. <laughs> so here I was, a creative director and a copywriter, and I didn't even know what one, one was. <laughs> so I, I stayed at that agency for about two or three years, which until they fired me for mostly unrelated uh, reasons. And uh, then um, kind of a common scenario there, uh, a couple of weeks later, they called me back in and they said, Richard, I'm you know, we fired you because we didn't like the long lunches that you took, especially coming back drunk half the time. Uh, we didn't like uh, that the fact that you rolled in at 10 o'clock in the morning and left at 4. There were a lot of your habits we didn't like, but we loved we liked your copy. We loved your copy. So what we'd like to do is just pay you on a per-piece basis. And I went, uh, well, that sounds pretty good to me. And uh and so that was how my uh, career as a freelancer began, and that was way back in 1979. So I've been a freelancer for about 40 years. Wow. Uh, and so the first thing that uh, when I first met you, Richard, was at a Titans event, and you were sharing a bunch of the experiences that you've had you know, from early on in your career. You had actually even put together a booklet, I think, for the people who were uh, in the meeting and shared a bunch of the stories that you know you had gone through. And I loved reading them because I also started my – career writing direct response mail, the actual mail that, you know, that shows up in the mailbox, not, not the inbox. Uh, and so, you know, as I was going through, I'm like, oh, these are, you know, you were, you were talking about, um, you know, the envelopes that you were using and the teasers that you were using and uh, the lessons that you learned from so, so much of that stuff. And I just found it endlessly fascinating. And I, at the time I, I said, hey, Richard needs to be on our list for podcast guests eventually. So I, I wonder if you could tell us, you know, some of those, uh, some of those lessons that you learned early on as you were working with direct response mail and how it applies to some of the things that we do today? Well, uh, the, uh, the booklet is still available, by the way, it's, uh, I, uh, free sample which is my, uh, website. But when I, when I decided to do that, you know, I mean, most copywriters have some version of their samples on their website. And I thought, well, what if I created a booklet of, of samples uh, and choosing interesting ones. And what I think I did that somewhat different from many copywriters is that I didn't just choose the huge successes. I also chose ones that were failures, some of them spectacular failures, and quite often things where, you know, um, and I've been in this situation a lot where I've written something that's really great and the client thinks it's great and we're all excited about it, and then the marketplace hates it. And I'd sort of, um, I'd take each one of these things and I'd analyze, you know, what made it a success and, or what made it a failure and, and what I learned from it. And, and it's really a process of uh, learning that's gone over the course of uh, 40 years. I'm not sure uh, if I can think of any particular uh, lessons uh, that I've learned, although you will notice things getting longer and longer over that time. In that first job that I uh, told you about, uh, my boss actually told me, he said, Richard, if you ever, ever go over to the backside of a single page for, for a fundraising letter, I will fire you on the spot. Only write one page letters. People just, it's 1976, for God's sake. People do not have time to read long letters. <laughs> and it's funny, you go back into the advertising trade press, you go back to, um, you know, there was a there was a, a trade magazine way back in the 20s called Printers Inc. And they were still having the very same argument. And you'd see people write in to Printers Inc. saying, this is 1926, for God's sake. People don't have time to read long copy. <laughs> we're, we're still having that argument. But at any rate, um, you know, at some point, somebody did go over to the back side of the letter, and uh, and that, that's when we learned that two pages usually works better than one. And uh, then we tried three pages, and we learned that three usually works better than two, and four works better than three, and five works better than four, to the point where nowadays, when I do a project, it comes out of my printer at something like 60 or 70 or 80 pages long, and there's no there's no end in sight, um, and it, probably the biggest changes that have occurred in my whole career have been format changes. With that being the first one, when we first discovered that um, long letters work or long copy works better than short copy, uh, then uh, the uh, 
the invention of the Magalog by Ed Elliott and Jim Rutz, which happened in uh, the early 90s, was a huge change in the business. Uh, we, we were suddenly all writing Magalogs. Uh, then the internet came along and we started writing landing pages and websites and emails. And then most recently that I would say it's happened about in the past, uh, I guess it's been five, six, seven years now, uh, we've gone to video sales letters. So all of these have been just sea changes in the business and they're all basically format changes. But the, the principles of writing direct mail do not change at all. Not at all. And that's why, you know, it's still so valuable to read these books that are 60, 70, 80 years old, like Claude Hopkins and David Ogilvy and Gene Schwartz and everything. Nearly everything they had to say back then still applies today. It's only the formats that have changed. But it's interesting that some copywriters just haven't kept up with it. Uh, you know, I mean, I had uh, I had dinner the other night with, uh, well, I might as well give you his name, Don Houtman. He was one of the uh, top copywriters of of the day back in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and uh, when email came in, uh, he said, Richard, I just I just don't want to deal with this. So he, he retired. He retired very early. Uh, and I've known other copywriters, very, very good copywriters, who are still writing um, inserted direct mail packages, you know, with an envelope and a letter and a brochure and stuff. They never made the transition to, to Magalogs. Um, and this, this uh, you know, they've managed to get by, but it really hurts your career when when everything, when the things that are working now are, are um, uh, video sales letters and other things like that. You got to keep up. You got to keep up with this stuff. And it's not that hard, really. Yeah. Before we you know, stop talking about, you know, the the sample book that you shared with us, I, I just want to talk maybe about one letter that I, I absolutely love this because I think it's one of the best examples I've ever seen of a direct response piece where the copy and the design work together. And that's the sea turtle uh, letter that you wrote for, you know, a rescue fund, I think, back in the 80s. And if people get a copy of this, they can see that, you know, the the copy on the page is referring to, you know, turtles moving up the page and things that are at the bottom of the page. And it's just like such a brilliant piece. And if I'm not mistaken, it won you a bunch of awards as well. Oh, yes. It was probably one of the most decorated <laughs> direct mail packages in history. Got won all sorts of awards. It really made my career in a lot of ways. I was um, not only did I win these big awards, but I, they did a profile of me in advertising age. And uh, back then, it was this was uh, the late 80s. It was still a somewhat insular uh, community of direct marketing, and New York was the capital of it. I was living in New York at the time. So all of a sudden, everybody in the direct mail business and in New York in particular knew who I was, and it was all because of this this one letter. And I will, you know, I don't normally steal credit from artists, and the artist, if she's still around, will probably kill me if she ever hears this. But that that was really my idea to put the uh, to put the um, uh, turtles on the page there and to show uh, the meandering path of the turtle as it wandered through the letter. Because the uh, this has be, be become very well known now, but back in the day, not many people knew about. The fact that beachfront lighting can distract hatchling turtles from going to the ocean. They've been trained over years of evolution to go towards the light, which a million years ago meant go towards the ocean. Um, but if you've got condos and apartment buildings and gas stations and what have you by the beach, they get distracted by that light. They, hang, they start heading in the wrong direction, and of course they die. Um, a lot of people know that nowadays. At the time I wrote this, uh, it wasn't all that well known. So if you read the letter, you can see this one, the path of this one little turtle who gets distracted and he kind of meanders all the way through the letter. And what's great about the letter is that both from a copy and a visual standpoint, it's almost more like watching a movie than it is reading a letter. And that's, uh, I think that's what made it so enormously successful, not only in terms of how it did in the mail, but uh, also winning all those awards and everything. And where can we find that specific campaign? Is that part of your lead magnet? Where can I find that? 
That's well. That's uh, part of free. Um, my that's that's my sample book basically, and it's called My First Forty Years in Junk Mail, and it's available at www.freesamplebook.com. And uh, we've had probably ten thousand people download that over the years, and I I'm, I'm still rather proud of it. It's just uh, it's it's really quite different from I think anybody else, any other copywriter's self promotion. Yeah, I want I want to see that turtle. So, can you share a couple other uh, go to books that you've you keep on your desk today that you find yourself going back to often? Well, um, I I don't want to repeat the ones that people already know. You know, obviously, uh, Gene Schwartz's book is very important and everything. But uh, there, there's one. There are a couple of books that I think are overlooked. Uh, one is a book called *The Responsive Chord* by Tony Schwartz. Uh, no relation, but um, it's a book, and it's not specifically a book about copywriting. It is about communication. And this was a man who made most of his living in the area of advertising, writing, uh, production, and writing. He was responsible for the famous Daisy commercial that ran against, uh, or yeah, that was ran for Lyndon Johnson back in 1964. But he was a he was a real genius of communication, and it's called the Responsive Chord, and it's a whole book about the concept that was really the basic underlining concept of Gene Schwartz's book. So I really think they go kind of. Together, they're no relation to each other. Interestingly enough, I knew them both a little bit, um, but uh, I think that's a very overlooked book. Um, another one is um, the Solid Gold Mailbox by Walter Wentz, who was the genius behind the enormous success of Reader's Digest. There was a time in the '60s and before when Reader's Digest was not only the most popular magazine in the world, but you could, li- you could literally go into just about any home in America and find a copy of Reader's Digest somewhere in there. I mean, it's just enormously successful, millions and millions circulation. And Walter Wentz was the man who probably more than any other was responsible for that. He invented the the uh, involvement device, uh, which in his, in his case in particular was a penny. He would sell it. He would send a penny, or actually, he'd send two pennies um, with the mailing, and um, and one would be returned with the with the reply card, and and the the customer would keep the other. And this was a brand new thing then. And they did so much mailing that the the U.S. Mint had to put on special printing runs or or press runs just for Reader's Digest and send trainloads of pennies from Denver to uh, upstate New York, where Reader's Digest was located, to, to run these mailings. I mean, there was, it's, it's hard now to imagine the scale of this kind of uh, direct mail success. So, I mean, this is one of the real great pioneering geniuses of the direct mail business. And it always bothers me a, a little bit that his book never gets mentioned. Uh, so, I would say those two, and also Lester Wonderman, another really pioneering uh, person, especially in the area of continuity uh, marketing, which is something that is becoming more and more important nowadays. Lester Wonderman, who created the Wonderman Ricotta Klein uh, uh, direct mail agency, really, he didn't invent continuity marketing, but he sort of perfected it. And his book is also brilliant. So I think those are three books that you almost never hear mentioned when people, when copywriters talk about great books to read. So I, I like to give them a plug. I think they're all three of them are brilliant. So you, you've given me two to add to my list. I've actually uh, I own Wonderman's book, and I agree. I think it's fantastic. It's full of awesome stories just about the early days of, of direct response. So absolutely amazing, yeah. And uh, you know, Wonderman worked kind of on the. The, the account side and, and sort of the mathematical side of this business, which is so important. Uh, we copywriters all think we're the most important ones, but we're really not. I mean, the, the, the classic uh, uh, equation for how uh, mailing is going to succeed is that it's 40% due to the list and 40% due to the offer and 20% due to the copywriter. Um, 
the reason copy gets so much attention is because it's the one that you can manipulate the most often. I mean, you can always hire different copywriters and come up with different approaches and everything like that. So, so it's the one that kind of gets focused on the most attention, but it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the mathematics of it. You know, how do you, how do you make a success? How do you know, for example, what level of initial response is going to, um, give you a lifetime value of a customer that will make it profitable. All the, all the arithmetic of direct marketing is, is just enormously important. And uh, Lester Wonderman was a genius at that. And his brother, who was in partnership with him, whose name escapes me at the moment, he was the, uh, his first name escapes me, uh, he was the creative guy. So it was, uh, it was a terrific partnership and uh, probably the world's most successful direct mail agency. Richard, before we stop talking about you know what what you did with direct mail, uh, do you have a favorite piece or a, you know a favorite client that you worked with that you did some amazing things with, or um, you know that just really stands out as part of your career? Well, favorite piece and favorite client are probably two different things. <laughs> <laughs> Fair I enough. Would, I would have to say that the uh, that the turtle one you mentioned is is a is a favorite piece. Also, in the booklet that I told you about uh, that anybody can download is uh, one that I wrote for the American Spectator magazine that uh, is a personal favorite of mine. And uh, that one, every time they mailed it, it would not only uh, bring in subscriptions, but it would get tons of fan letters. People would write in and say, this is the best letter I've ever written, I've ever read, and uh, you should give this guy a uh, promotion, and so on and so forth. And the client would always send me those letters, and I'd keep them, and I was just... I was very tickled by that. It was like being a movie star, you know. Um, favorite client, I'd, I'd have to say, well, there have been, Rodale was a very important client for me, and I had made a lot of great friends there. There was another newsletter publisher called Belvoir Communications. Uh, the, the creative director and president there was named Don Smith, and Don Smith was not only a great client and a great friend, but he was really an important mentor for me because he was a better copywriter than I was, even though he worked only for that company. But he was just a wonderful copywriter, and I learned so much working for him. And then I would have to say the third one is um, kind of my principal client right now, which is Boardroom. I, I, all the people at Boardroom are just uh, so nice and, and so easy to work with, and, and they have they have such respect for copywriters there and they, they enjoy copywriters and, and, and they, they treat them like gods really. And it's, it's just a wonderful client to have. And of course they've, they've had some changes recently. Brian Kurtz is no longer there and Marty died a few years ago and, and some other people in the creative department have, have left and there've been some changes, but they, they are still a very good client to work with. And if I, you know, if I ever had to like just choose a client, it would probably be boardroom. <laughs> All right. I have a question about your long lunches that you you mentioned at your agency time. I can't skip you over that. Your so. homework on me, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing during these long lunches? Can you just create the picture for all of us of your life back at this agency? Oh, those. Oh, I thought you were talking about the long lunches I take now because oh. I never, <laughs> I never did get over that habit. I had a feeling. Well, the other question is fast forward to today. What does your schedule and your, what are your lunches look like today? So let's talk about back then and then today, what your schedule looks like. Okay. Well, back in the old days, I mean, it was sort of the madman culture working for an agency, although I was not on Madison Avenue. Uh, and I never did get into the sort of, you know, having sex with your secretaries aspects of it and, and that sort of thing uh, that they had on Mad Men. Uh, but I really did master the two, three, four martini lunch. I was really good at that. And uh, the, the odd thing is that I would come back uh, really pretty ripped and, uh, and write some more. And uh, I, I had uh, a boss tell me once, you know, that because we, we were so busy back then, and of course the letters were a lot shorter too, plus they were fundraising letters that required a little less research than, than consumer-type mailings do. Um, 
and we were literally, or I was literally writing one in the morning and one in the afternoon with the three martini run, lunch in between. And I remember my boss once said to me, Richard, you know, the afternoon uh, letters are not quite as good as the morning letters. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the first signs that I should see that my tenure there was probably not going to last very long. Um, Nowadays, I'm a, I'm a bit uh, better about that, although Friday afternoons will often find me somewhere um, enjoying a very good lunch and not going back to the office. Um, you know, in terms of my work habits, I have to say that I probably have some of the worst work, work habits in the world. And I, I read all these things on the Internet, among other copywriters, about, you know, what how they... Uh, master these various routines and and uh, discipline themselves to work and, and 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 I do almost none of those things I mean I get up late and I diddle around on the internet for about a half an hour or an hour I have really literally I'm just about I have just about every bad habit you could have I'm lazy um, I I don't spend all that much time each day working there's only there's only one good habit that I have, and it's really probably been the thing that has saved me over the years, and that is that I do not procrastinate. Um, at least I don't procrastinate about copy. I com I procrastinate about a lot of other things in my life. There are a million things, you know, whether it's going to the doctor or what have you. I, I'm a terrible procrastinator. procrastinator but I have never, ever procrastinated when it comes to copy. Like tomorrow, I'm going to start a new project for Boardroom. And uh, hopefully, if they're on time, I'm going to get a big box in the mail and I'm going to get a manuscript because it's a book project. And I will start working on it tomorrow. And there are some copywriters who will take that big box and they'll put it in the corner and it's like they're afraid to open it. Even though they're on deadline, you know they'll keep it in the they'll keep it in the corner, and oh, I don't want to look at it today. I don't want to look at it today. And I've never been like that. I will I will go in immediately and start on it. I may not do much. I may just kind of look through it. I may just kind of peruse it a little bit, think about it a little bit, but I won't put it off. And uh, that's that's probably the one good work habit I. <laughs> So, and, and if you have to pick one, if you can only have one good work habit, not procrastinating is probably the best one to have. Yeah, no doubt. That's a, that's a good one. Richard, what would you say are the things that a copywriter needs to know in order to be really great at what we do? Well, the one thing that I've learned over the years, uh, slowly, unfortunately, is the importance of uh, research. Because in those old agency days, um, just like today, you get a stack of information from the client. And my usual modus operandi back then was that I would start working, reading that stack and I'd get two or three items in and, and I'd get my first good idea. And as soon as I got my first good idea, I'd put the stack aside and I'd go to the typewriter and I'd try to write the copy based on that one good idea. It took me a long time to realize that the good idea may not be in the first few pages of the research. It may be at the bottom of the stack, or sometimes you get all the way through the stack and you still don't have a really good idea. You got to go elsewhere. You got to go to the library or whatever. Nowadays, we have Google, of course, which helps a lot. Uh, or you may have to go to the client. You may have to pick up the phone and, and talk to uh, people who have bought the product in the past or people who are... Uh, suffering from the uh, the, the uh, ailment that your product is supposed to relieve, or what have you, you got to push and push and push on the research. And I just did not realize this at the beginning of my career. And it's been a long struggle for me—not a struggle, but it's been a slow learning curve for me to realize how important that is. And I'm still not as good at it as I should be. And when I look at the the copywriters, my so-called peers, who are much more successful than I am and make a lot more money than I am. It's not often because I think they're better writers than I am. It's because they've pushed harder on that research than I do. And they continue to do that. I mean, 
Paris Lampropoulos, for example, so knows so much about alternative health that he might as well be a doctor. You know, I mean, you could you could call Paris and say, I've got this strange rash on my elbow here. What should I do about it? And he'll say, well, you should take this supplement and that supplement and the other supplement. You know, he just knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And, and it's because he puts so much effort into the research. He also puts both, both David and Paris and, and, and Clayton, too, I think they also put a lot of effort in not being satisfied with their first drafts or their first efforts. And that's another thing that I struggle with. I, I do a lot of outlining, and uh, my uh, goal is that when I finish the copy, I don't want to do 75 drafts of it. I, I like it to be mostly finished when I, when I do the first draft. Uh, so I tend to put uh, some effort into the outlining aspect of it. But these guys, and Bentsavenga was like this too, they'll write a headline and, uh, and they'll uh, put it there as a placekeeper and then they'll think uh, when they go back, they'll write a hundred more headlines and decide, you know, which of those hundred is the best. And I've never done that. I write the original headline and if it's pretty good, I say, well, that's eh, pretty good. <laughs> It'll do. <laughs> so uh, it's really uh, it's really work habits, I think, and also uh, just being relentless, relentless about your research and relentless about your editing, relentless about not being satisfied with good enough and trying to get all the way to excellence. And uh, I just can't can't sit here with you guys and be dishonest and pretend that I've been great about that in my career because I have not. But I do, I am smart enough to know that that, that, that those are probably the most important things that will separate the average copywriter from the really brilliant copywriter. Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your file, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. If you were to start your copywriting career over today, you just become a freelancer for the first time, what would you do initially uh, based on the experience that you have to, to get a jump start? Well, that's a very easy question to answer. Um, I would get better instruction and guidance and mentorship uh, than I did. Now, in my defense, it wasn't really available at that time. Uh, again, I worked for an agency where the bosses at the agency really didn't know a lot about um, copywriting. They knew something about the direct mail business, and they knew politics because we were a political fundraising agency. They had good client relations. They had a lot of strengths, but they were not creative copywriters. They were not people who really were particularly good at that. So um, I, I learned almost nothing at that direct mail agency. If I had been smart, I would have, after I'd left that agency, I would have tried to get a job with some agency that did have good copy, like Richard Vigory's agency, which was in pretty much the same business, or even better, to go to Tom Phillips's company, Phillips Publishing, uh, where there were great copywriters, there were people who knew copy, 
Nowadays, of course, we have Agora that is responsible for training so many cop young copywriters and doing it so well. These guys are all getting, these young people nowadays are getting tremendous education. They're getting um, uh, education from their agencies, and then they're going and seeking it out from copy coaches like uh, David Garfinkel and, and others who are in the copy coaching business. And, uh, and there's just so much information out there that's available. I mean, you guys, Karen, Rob, you, you provide a lot of information. AWAI provides a lot of information. When I was starting, almost none of this existed. We had the same books that you do, the same older books, the Cables books, the Schwartz books, uh, the Hopkins books, and so forth. But we didn't have all this, this kind of uh, direct personal guidance that you can get nowadays. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just so valuable. Now, again, some copywriters got around this. Uh, Paris Lampropoulos, for example, went to Clayton Makepeace, and so did Carlin, Carlene Anglade Cole. They both went to Clayton and basically, you know, begged him to uh, to uh, be uh, let him be a mentor to them. And I think David went to Jim Rutz and said, "Look, I'll work for you for free." Again, tremendous initiative that they're showing there. And I didn't, I didn't do that. I just kind of struggled along and tried to learn the things that I could learn by, by trial and error and, and success and failure. So um, I, I would say that if I had my career to do all over again, that is probably the biggest thing that I would do differently is try to get better advice, guidance, mentorship, treating, uh, um, um, education, I mean, at the very beginning of my career. It would, it would just mean so much. I mean, it, even just spending two years at Agora, I think, would probably give you such a tremendous head start, and it would be equivalent to roughly my first 20 years uh, of just kind of using the trial and error method. I, I want to ask about your book, but before we do that, I want to ask about the things that you learned while you were writing this book. So uh, a lot about uh, the book is about a confidence man. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But I think as you wrote the book, you learned that there's a lot of things that con men do that copywriters do. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was, I was fascinated by that. Uh, the, the, the turning point of the book is when the, the lead character had, wants to get revenge on a mafia don who has uh, screwed him for other reasons. Uh, we can get into the plot points later if you like, but basically he decides that he has to that he wants to play an elaborate uh, con game against uh, against this mafia Don, which is a very uh, hazardous thing to do. Needless to say, when I got to that point in the book, or at least in the outlining of the book, I realized well I don't really know a lot about how con games are played. I don't know the various steps that a con artist goes through in what they call a long con. Um, a long con is like kind of the sting where, where, there's a, where it takes place over the course of several weeks and they, they put together a very elaborate uh, con game. Uh, the, the short cons are things like three-card Monty games and, and pickpocketing and so on and so forth. But the long con is, is a very complex thing. And I realized I had to stop and read some books and magazine articles and, and uh, other information about con artists to see how they work. And uh, as I was doing that, <laughs> I realized that, my God, they, these con artists use very much the same techniques that we use in copywriting. It was a, kind of a surprising and somewhat shocking thing to learn. But I, I, it occurred to me that, well, uh, we can learn a lot from what con artists do, and con artists can probably learn a lot from what we do. Also, the, the, the difference between a copywriter and a con artist, of course, is, is something that the law recognizes as criminal intent. In other words, we, we are not trying to steal from our clients. Uh, quite the opposite. We're trying to give them a product that is worth as much or maybe even more than what they paid for it. And we're also, in direct marketing, we're trying to establish a relationship with a client so, or a customer uh, so that they will buy from us in the future because the economics of our business is such that the first sale usually doesn't result in a profit, but the second, third, fourth, and fifth third sales eventually will. And that's where we get the concept of uh, lifetime value of a customer, which is all the profit in the direct marketing businesses is in that. 
Um, the con artist, on the other hand, is basically a thief. He's a criminal. He wants to steal your money and to get out of town before you realize it. The only thing is that he uses these same persuasive techniques that we use in copywriting. So I, I just decided to create this uh, booklet called How to Talk Anybody Into Anything, uh, Persuasion Secrets of the World's Greatest Con Artists. And it just goes through the various thing that, things that con artists do that have some application for what we as copywriters do. And also for all the other situations where we are in life where we need to persuade people. Because obviously persuading people is one of the most valuable skills you can have in business, but also in your personal life. I mean, we're, we're in situations often where we have to persuade our children to do something. We have to persuade our spouse to do something. We have to persuade our friends. Our, you know, so there comes a time when you have to persuade your parent, parents that it may be time for them to, to go into a, a senior residence. I mean, persuasion comes up over and over and over again. And con artists are just like the world's greatest experts on this. So I wrote that booklet to try to take some of their techniques and apply them to what we do. I read somewhere that you attended Comic Con and other fan conventions um, and also met Captain Kirk and the Fonz, two separate occasions. But can you just talk a little bit more about what attracted you to Comic Con and these fan conventions and what you learned from uh, those conventions about people uh, that's helped you? Well, that kind of goes to the how I got the idea for this particular novel. I, I have a an old friend. Are you are either of you two into Star Trek at all? Uh, I used to watch it a little bit. I wouldn't call myself a Trekker for sure. I'm not not into it. I'd love to be a Trekkie. I just haven't I stepped into that world yet. Well, Maybe I in the have future. A friend who was part of the cast of Star Trek, and not the original Star Trek, but the second one. It was called the Star Trek Next Generation. the The commander of the ship was Patrick Stewart. And my friend was like the second in command of the ship, Commander Riker, and his real name is Jonathan Frakes. And I've known him for many, many, many years. We did a play together way back in 1972. And uh, Glenn Close was actually in that play too, believe it or not. So two, two rather famous people came out of that one play. Uh, I have not re re uh, stayed in touch with Glenny over the years. We seem to have gone in different directions, but I have remained a friend with uh, Jonathan. He's just a wonderful person. And well, obviously we're not really close. We're in different parts of the country and we do different kinds of things, but we do kind of touch base with each other every now and then. And one night uh, I was in Maine with my wife on vacation and we knew that Jonathan and his wife who's also a big star, by the way. Her name is named Jeannie Francis. She's a big soap opera star. We knew that they had a little, they had a vacation home in, nearby in Belfast, Maine, and they had a gift store there. And I said to my wife, why don't we uh, go over to Jonathan and Jeannie's gift store and maybe they'll be there and we'll say hi. Well, we did. And of course they weren't there, but on the way out, I took a picture of my wife in front of the store and I sent it uh, via email to Jonathan I said, you know, guess where we are today? And about two minutes later, I got an email back saying, I'm going to be in Maine tonight. Let's go to dinner tomorrow. So we had dinner with him, and it was the first time I'd seen him in quite a while. So I was kind of curious about what he was up to. I knew he wasn't acting much anymore because I hadn't seen him on television and anything. So I said, what are you doing these days? And he said, well, I do a lot of directing of television, a lot of network shows, uh, television directors tend to be freelancers and they kind of hop from one show to another. And But he said, you know, one of the main things I do to make money nowadays is I go to fan conventions. And I went, what's a fan convention? I had no idea. I had never heard of Comic-Con or anything like that. It was completely new to me. And he said, you know, the first time I went to them was years and years ago, and I'd never heard of them either. But I went to this. It was a Star Trek convention. And he said there was so much money. The, see what they do, these, these, these actors, they sign their autographs for cash. But it's not just the autograph. Like the autograph costs $35, but if you don't have anything for the person to sign, they'll sell you uh, their, you know, their photograph, their headshot. They'll sign that for another $15. And a lot of people want to have their picture taken with them. It's a selfie, so that's another $25. And it's all cash, by the way. And these people, even though they're on television 30 years ago, are still so popular that they're like hundreds of people in line to get 
these autographs. And, and Jonathan told me when he first came home from his first one, he wasn't prepared for all the cash he had. He had he, he didn't even have a knapsack with him, so he had all this cash stuffed in his pockets and in his underwear and in his shoes and everything. And uh, I was thinking about that conversation a couple of weeks later, and I thought, well, would, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody stole all that cash? <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was really the basic idea behind the novel. And then when it came to fan conventions, Kara, to get more to your question, after I'd written the novel and when it was getting ready to be published, it was last fall, and I realized, you know, this novel is really a lot about fan conventions, but everything I wrote, I wrote just for research. And I've never been to one. And I thought, well, I might be doing a podcast with Kara and Rob someday, <laughs> or I might, be, I might be on a radio show or whatever, and the reporter might ask me, well, you know, what are fan conventions like? And I'd never been to one. So I figured I'd better go to one. So I picked one in a, a smaller city, Louisville, and I got a ticket for it. And when I got that ticket online, uh, one, one of the uh, stars who was going to be appearing there was Brent Spiner, who was a member of the cast of my friend's show. And, uh, but I, my friend was not going to be there. So I, I, that was okay. But when, when I was ready to leave that morning to go to Louisville for that fan convention, um, I saw all of a sudden Brent Spiner was out and my friend Jonathan was in. So again, I emailed him. I said, you're going to be in Louisville tonight? He said, yeah, let's have dinner. And so uh, he said, let's have dinner tomorrow night. So he called me from his hotel room the next morning and he said, look, tonight I'm going to be having dinner with um, Shatner and some of the other uh, stars at the convention. And he, t he told me, he said, you know, Shatner is... He's an okay guy, but he's kind of, he's a little grumpy. He can be a little rude. So maybe you and I would have more fun going off by ourselves. And I said, well, Jonathan, you know, I, I'd really kind of like to meet him. <laughs> so I said, okay, you're welcome to come to the dinner. So I walked into that dinner that night, and I was like the last person to arrive. And uh, Jonathan had saved me a seat right next to him. And when I walked in, it was like walking into Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. I mean, there was, Jonathan was seated next to me. Directly across from me was uh, William Shatner. Uh, Henry Winkler was seated next to him. Uh, LeVar Burton came down later and joined us. And it was just, it was just an amazing evening meeting all these iconic uh, television stars who, for the most part, even though they're all busy with various projects and nowadays are, are people who kind of had their stardom years ago and now go to these fan conventions just to make cash, uh, which is uh, sort of what the, or it's largely what the novel was about. So it was just a, a fantastic evening. And uh, the story I always tell about it uh, was uh, I was, I was just kind of listening to, you know, I didn't have a lot to, to say to these guys, they're all talking show business and television and acting and whatnot. And I, I didn't have all that much to contribute, but it was fascinating to listen to. And I was just kind of sitting there eating my uh, uh, carpaccio appetizer. And all of a sudden this fork came out of nowhere and grabbed a huge chunk of the carpaccio and took it away. And I looked up like ready to say, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing? When I realized that it was Shatner who had done that. And I, and I thought, my God, this is, this is, this man saved the known universe like a half a dozen times. I, I can't chew out Captain Kirk for stealing my carpaccio. <laughs> it was an incredible evening, and it really, it sort of dovetailed so much with the book. It was like, it was like life imitating art. Was he grumpy? Was he as grumpy as you were no, told? He was, he, he was charming. He was charming. Now, like a lot of actors, uh, they, um, they don't take a great interest in you. <laughs> <laughs> they're mostly interested in telling their own stories and uh, giving their own theories and their own ideas about whatever politics and talking about their life and so on. But he was, he was perfectly charming, very funny, very intelligent, very eloquent. I, I really enjoyed meeting him. Um, Winkler, on the other hand, uh, who I also liked, he was a very nice guy, but he was very shy and quiet and soft-spoken and so very, very different from the Fonzie character. 
Uh, and then uh, LeVar Burton was just a, a bundle of energy, just a, just a, you know, one of these people who is just so filled with energy and charisma that it kind of radiates off him. So uh, all three of them were different, but all very interesting people uh, to meet. Well, uh, next time you go to a, a fan con, we're going to have to go with you, Richard, because it sounds like it sounds like a blast. Uh, I know all the right people. Exactly. Right. So I want to say I've read the Don Con um, and it's a it's a fun book. It actually reminded me a lot of some of the um, old uh, older Pulp Fiction writers like Lawrence Sanders or John McDonald. You know, it's kind of it's kind of in that same uh, the same kind of pacing and the same kind of story. And so it's it's a fun book. And I think. Thank you. I'll take that as a huge compliment, I, actually. I think our listeners should pick it up, but really, you know, there's just a ton of value in that, in that free giveaway that you've put together, the how to sell people, how to sell anyone, anything, uh, you know, because you do walk through, you know, all of these persuasion techniques. And so, uh, I just want to make sure that, you know, we, we mentioned that as well as we come to the end of the show, because there's just so much learning for copywriters and for anyone who needs to, you know, put together a selling message, whether it's an email or sales page, or like you were saying, you know, in, in just daily interactions that we do, it, it's, it really boils down to all of those tactics that uh, can help us convince, uh, you know, people to do the things that are hopefully in their best interest. And, and oftentimes that's, you know, to purchase something that we're selling. So I just, you know, wanted to, to say thanks for writing it and thanks for sharing that with, uh, with everyone. Oh, it's my pleasure. And it's available for free. Obviously you go to, uh, the doncon.com and, uh, press the button there. And, uh, there's all you have to do is give me your email address. I would warn you that the, uh, the process of getting the link can sometimes take a few minutes and sometimes even longer than that. So be patient, but it'll, it will eventually arrive. And, uh, but it's a free download and also the other booklet that we talked about, uh, on freesamplebook.com that's called how, um, it's called uh, My First 40 Years in Junk Mail, um, also available for free. To just give me your email address. And, and I should also advise you, I don't abuse your email address too much. With the, with the DonCon, I have sent a couple of follow-up emails trying to uh, urge you to buy the uh, novel itself. But uh, uh, trust me, I won't, be, uh, I won't be filling your mailbox with spam every day. Yeah. And, and if you end up getting that, uh, you know, the free sample, um, you know, the American Spectator lesson letter that you mentioned, it, it's another fun example, you know, sort of breaking the fourth wall. I mean, you're talking about how you're actually a, a, a junk mail writer and, you know, talking directly to the subject. So definitely, you know, lots of ideas worth checking out and reading and just learning from. I, I appreciate you, your willingness to share them with us and, and with our audience. So thank you for that, Richard. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you. It was a terrific, uh, a terrific opportunity for me to talk with you. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.